0: It's Thursday, October 21st, and you've got Oz in your ears. Yes, yes, yes. So nice to be back with you on Radio Free Oz. It's such fun. I'm Peter Bergman, your host, co-host David Osmond here in
1: the gorgeous Blue U Studios with Dave Maloney behind the glass. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing okay. Gee, uh, election, <laughs> the election is... Mm, it's coming. Now less than two weeks away. Yeah. Now it's coming up on being a week away. Well, I, I decided that we should devote the beginning of this program to know your Tea Party candidates.
0: Well, yeah, you know, it's kind of Damon Runyon-like, you know, yeah. like, who's running today? Right. I'll tell you who's running today. Right,
1: right. What's in the daily news? Well in the day in the in the in the Daily New York Times today which is of course not Damon Runyon's newspaper but the other one yeah. the one he sat on not the one he read you know Right Uh, There's a nice uh, uh, group of profiles of Tea Party candidates. I thought I'd just know your candidate. And since, of course, this isn't just a statewide or nationwide, it's a worldwide program. It goes out there to everybody. We have our own Tea Party candidates right here on Whidbey Island. Their signage is now blocking most intersections here. But we'll we'll pass on that. And we'll go down to the constitutionalists. We'll start there on this list. (laughs) uh, (laughs) These
0: are are people running for the House or Senate or Uh, both?
1: Well, both. Both, okay. And we got candidates, here's constitutionalists, candidates who've embraced a strict interpretation of the Constitution. That means it's it's with a whip, That strict interpretation. Uh, As it was written, in some cases advocating the repeal of the 16th and 17th Amendments, which allowed the progressive income tax and the direct election of senators. And that would be Sandra Adams from Florida, Paul Gosar in Arizona, Tom Mullins in New Mexico, and Steve Sutherland in Florida. That's two candidates in Florida who want to repeal two amendments of the Constitution. Yeah,
0: which means no, they want to repeal. This is one of the oddest, by the way, because a couple of people who are early Tea Party candidates mm-hmm. said, yeah, 17th, yeah, and not knowing what it was, which is direct Election of senators instead of having the state. You know, a yeah, like the governor, the, the governor, legislature, and, and whatever, the legislature, which is just the oddest thing in the world to be running on, huh? And when he found out, he said it. He said, "No, I didn't say it. If I said it, I don't mean it." Sounds elitist. And to, and me. to do away with the progressive income tax, oh boy, the Koch brothers really oh, happy. With that.
1: There's Why a no? lot of happy, a lot of happy billionaires out there. Yeah. There are a lot of happy billionaires out there anyway. Right. Okay, among the libertarian candidates, they emphasize individual liberties like the right to carry your own gun. They uh, now here's one that you have to explain to me. They embrace Austrian economics.
0: All right, let me tell you about uh, that's the Austrian Thanks, School of, of Economics, <laughs> yeah.
1: right? Schumpeter and, and, and various other
0: what's yeah. his name? Oh, god, the names now that I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. It's what they call classical economics, mm-hmm. and it has to do with hard money, right? It's anti inflationary, it's anti government intervention, and uh, it's um it's old school. It's anti-Keynesian. You don't pump prime the economy with government money. You don't print money to help people out of the problem. In other words, it's a bankrupt school of economics. <laughs> do they still
1: practice this in Austria? Oh no, want to What's
0: good about it, what's yeah. really good about yeah. the Austrian school, and they teach it like uh, Milton Friedman comes out of it, University of Chicago, yep. so at Yale, no. <laughs> uh, but the, what, what they do say, though, is that they are the ones that predicted the housing bubble. The whole idea of living in a bubble, living on non you know, non assets as a way of, of, of putting putting non assets on your books and monetizing them is anathema to uh To the old school. And they were right about that. They predicted this crash before anybody else. Unfortunately, with the crash, they're not ready to step aside and said, yeah, you're going to have to pump prime the economy just like in any depression because otherwise the deflation gets worse and worse. Corporations sit on their money, Mm. right? There's no law that says you can't sit on your money unless, of
1: course, I change that law. Oh no, no, don't don't go there. Okay, birthers. You know there are birthers. Out oh there. no, are they, candidates like Michelle Bach. Candidates who have questioned whether President Obama was born in the United States. Morgan Philpott in Utah. Mm-hmm. Rocky Razowski Rizzo- in Michigan. I thought you were
0: going to say Rocky Racco.
1: Rocky Razkowski in yeah. Michigan. Yeah. Tim Wahlberg he 's in Michigan, too. that makes two in two birthers in Michigan, right, and Alan West in Florida oh, so, Alan West, but Alan West is the one that told Boehmer, I give you a D on that
0: pledge thing that don 't work at all
1: right right well here 's the um, uh, here 's the privatizers uh-huh. candidates who have advocated partly privatizing or phasing out social security and or Medicare, Sharon Angle from yeah. Nevada. Uh, At Don Beneshek, another Michigan kooky bird here, Ken Buck from Colorado, and that's, they're both, there's two for the Senate there, everybody else is the House, Ken Buck in the Colorado Senate, Rick Crawford in Arkansas, and Robert Dold in Illinois, they all want a private, watch it, know your candidate, and then we have, finally, the Department of Off With Their Heads, which is really my favorite, because these are guys with really ideas, Yeah, you know, instead of slogans. Here they are, candidates who propose getting rid of entire federal departments. Oh, yes, Department and of Education, want, Department of yeah, Energy, here, Department of... Here they oh, are, here they Ken come. Buck, Colorado Senate, wants to get rid of the Department of Energy, Education, and, of course, the National Endowment for the Arts.
0: Yeah, Right.
1: Me, yeah. uh, Keith Fimian of Virginia Eleventh District wants to get rid of the Department of Education. Sandra Adams, she's down there in Florida in the Twenty Fourth. The IRS, naturally. Uh, Jackie Walorski, Indiana Second District, the IRS. Paul Gosar, Arizona. He's part- back. Department of Education. Rand Paul, look out, Kentucky Senate, energy, education, and commerce. Yes. You want okay. to get rid of, all, now, of them. all of those things. And we also have Joe Heck. Uh, he's Nevada, 3rd District, Education, and Homeland Security. i kind got to kind of go along with him okay. there. If we're going to dump something, let's get rid of that bureaucracy. And then finally, Stephen Stivers of Ohio, the 15th District, all departments except the State Defense Justice and Treasury.
0: Oh, how mean, how lean. Tea Party, know
1: your candidates. Candidates.
0: The United States may be heading for an intensifying confrontation between the gray and the brown, says author Ronald Bronstein. Yes, as we trip into the double dip, older white folks are being replaced by brown and black kids, and in a decade or so, young non-whites will be the national majority. In response, older white folks have gone just plain crazy. It's the simplest explanation for the mania that has gripped a vast segment of our over 50 white boomers. They are being simultaneously overwhelmed by the not-me and the not-it. The not-me is every member of the legion of young people of color, any color, any shade, that increasingly dominates the popular culture. The not-it is the new reality of disappearing jobs, evaporating credit, and diminishing resources that overnight replace their familiar world of American exceptionalism. Look at the crew of white seniors-to-be leading the reactionary charge against anyone who smells like the not-me and anything that smacks of the not-it. There's Rush Limbaugh morphing daily into an even more poisonous windbag. The self-anointed Glenn Beck, calling on God Almighty to strike down his ever-growing enemies list. And Laura Schlesinger, who vomits up the N-word when a woman of color has the temerity to call her show. Who's listening to these pious puss bags? The overwhelmingly white and over-50 Tea Party, for sure, and 71% of Republicans identify with the Tea Party. It's the revenge of the getting-old people. That's why, back in January, the entire GOP congressional delegation locked arms and brayed nay at every piece of Democratic legislation. It's a form of magical thinking. Say nay long enough and the problem will go away. But it won't. If the super-rich and the super-pissed orchestrate a midterm bloodbath and send a gang of know-nothing yahoos to Congress, who blame sunspots for global warming, American Muslims for Al-Qaeda, and masturbation for the decline of family values, well, things will get really bad really soon. States will go belly up, the infrastructure will crumble, unemployment will skyrocket, and the dream of the return of that shining, gated city on the hill will fade away. The angry Greys will have to step aside and let a younger, multi-hued America put this country back on the road to recovery. From CNN, a federal judge in Florida this week rejected a motion by the government to dismiss some counts of a multi-state challenge to the sweeping health care reform signed into law by President Barack Obama earlier this year. So the states, a lot of them, the attorney generals of more conservative states, are going after Obamacare state by state, saying it's unconstitutional. The ruling by senior U.S. District Judge Roger Vinson, I believe a... Ronald Reagan appointee, means the lawsuit filed by attorneys general from Florida and 19 other states can proceed on questions of whether the health care law is constitutional in requiring citizens to obtain health care coverage or face financial penalties, as well as forcing states to expand Medicaid. These are probably legitimate constitutional questions. I'm completely behind Obamacare, but everything like this, certainly something this big, is going to be tested in the courts. At this stage of the case, the plaintiffs have most definitely stated a plausible claim, Vincent's ruling said, of the challenge to whether the health care coverage mandate is constitutional. Florida Attorney General Bill McCollum, who filed the constitutional challenge, and officials from some of the other states that joined him, applauded the judge's decision. It is the first step to having the individual mandate declared unconstitutional and upholding state sovereignty in our federal system, a column said in a statement. So I see. So health and the availability of health is a state issue. It's state sovereignty. Uh, It's like germs don't cross state lines. The Liberal Constitutional Accountability Center noted that Vincent dismissed four of the six counts in the lawsuit. We're happy that Judge Vincent narrowed this lawsuit today, but what he really should have done is dismiss it altogether, CAC President Doug Kendall said in a statement. Last week, a federal judge in Michigan ruled in a similar lawsuit that the controversial penalty provision is constitutional. The issue, which is also before a a Virginia court, challenges the authority of Congress under the Commerce Clause to require the purchase of health insurance. Uh, Other states joining Florida in the lawsuits are Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Nebraska, Nevada, North and South Dakota, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Texas, Utah, and Washington. Washington? Wait a minute. I live in Washington. In the Michigan lawsuit, plaintiffs opposed to the Health Care Reform Act asked the court to declare the whole law, or at least the penalty provision of it, to be unconstitutional as a tax. Judge George Karamstee disagreed and rejected a motion for an injunction against the law derisively labeled Obamacare by opponents. He said the decision whether to purchase insurance or to attempt to pay for health care out of pocket is plainly economic, the ruling said. These decisions viewed in the aggregate have clear and direct impacts on health care providers, taxpayers and the insured population who ultimately pay for the care provided for those who go without insurance. That's right. We taxpayers pay for the people who can't afford health insurance under the present rate structure. Legal experts say they expect the issue to ultimately end up before the U.S. Supreme Court and the great minds of Scalia and Thomas. Oh, oh, yo, 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 I can hardly wait.
1: You know, Pete, you really do have to love New York politics because it's so incredibly ethnic.
0: That's yeah, true. That's you know, true. So, yeah.
1: Paladino and Cuomo is all the Italians, right? Okay, and then we have the the we have uh, uh, the Orthodox Jewish contingent that you have to get to help you vote, and you eat the knishes, and you go and have the thing. So the whole right? thing. Yeah. Okay, this is from uh, 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 Clyde uh, Haberman's column in the Times. So rigorously Orthodox, were the candidate's male guides for his speech in Brooklyn that they prohibited female members of the accompanying press contingent from joining their midst. The women were forced to the sidewalk while Mr. Palladino spoke. He went along with this, leading a Los Angeles Times columnist, Pat Morrison. We all know Pat Morrison. Or do we
0: know her? She's fabulous. She's, she what She's a, a she do? What? She
1: wrote, would Palladino have agreed to appear at an event at which the organizers had said, okay, but no black reporters allowed, no Latino journalists? Mr. Palladino may have read that speech, but neither he nor his staff wrote it. I was handed a script, he said. An extraordinary admission in itself. <laughs> yeah, I was just handed <laughs> I, a script. They just gave me this thing. The, uh, those angry sentiments were shaped for him by a rabbi named Yehuda Levin, a sometime political candidate and a flaming opponent of gay rights.
0: Which means he's probably gay himself.
2: I was born, I went home to watch my TV. Everyone was nice and the smiles were so sparkly. I watched what made them happy and I watched what made them cry. I learned about toys and candy, my mommy... And the TV God watches over me, opens up my eyes, shows me how to see All around the world, every night and day, on my TV Teaches how to love, teaches what is real, tells what life is of, tells me how to feel All I need to know, I can find and see on my TV I was a teenager And I knew just how to dress I learned to use deodorant So I would always smell my best I got myself a part-time job To buy the things I needed to have And the payments on my supercharged Camaro Really aren't so bad And the TV God watches over me Opens up my eyes Shows me how to see all around the world, every night and day, on my TV. Teaches how to love, teaches what is real, Tells what life is of, tells me how to feel. All I need to know, I can find and see on my TV. Everybody
0: be careful, everybody be careful. Be very careful, keep watching your TV There are people who are laughing with a wink or a nod There are people who are questioning our great TV God Everybody be careful, everybody be Be very careful, stay tuned to your TV There are ponies who are talking, there are wasters who read
3: There are people here who do not even own a TV Everybody be careful Oh, everybody be careful Oh, everybody
2: be careful Everything I know about my country I learned on TV The man on the screen tells me who is our enemy They say that we are free and we must fight to be number one So when the army calls I'll grab my TV, my car and my gun And the TV God watches over me, opens up my eyes, shows me how to see, all around the world, every night and day, on my TV. Teaches how to love, teaches what is real, tells what life is of, tells me how to feel, all I need to know, I can find and see on my TV.
0: Daily Beast, is Michelle Obama the Dems' a secret weapon? We'll know soon enough, as the First Lady has just been unleashed on the campaign trail, hoping to bring new energy to flagging Democratic campaigns before the midterm elections. This week, she spoke in Milwaukee for Senator Russell Feingold, struggling against Republican businessman Ron Johnson. He's the one that uh, blames global warming on sunspots. And she's headed to Chicago to help Democratic Senate candidate Alex Gianulis and three House candidates. Michelle is considered the most popular face of the Obama administration, and she's off limits from Republican attacks. Nor did she go after Republicans in her speech for Feingold, partly because she didn't want to risk losing bipartisan support for her own efforts to fight childhood obesity and help military families. Instead, she made a personal appeal for the president's agenda, saying about health care reform, "...Barack knows the heartbreak and frustration that our health insurance system has caused far too many families." Well, I guess she's preaching to the choir. I guess there's people who, who do want to hear that. But most people are so angry and so upset, so willing to let their neighbor's house burn down because they forgot to put that check in the mail. You have to wonder what good she's going to be at all. Hey, all of you Ozeneers on Twitter, uh, retweeting has its rewards, and we are going to give you an opportunity to win some cool stuff simply by helping us spread the word about Radio Free Oz on Twitter. If you aren't following us yet, go up to www.twitter.com slash and follow the show. See you on the inside. From Politico. House Minority Leader John Boehner's Political Action Committee gave $5,000 to Rich Lott, the Ohio Republican candidate who was dressed up as a Nazi officer during World War II reenactments from my home state. Oh, just just makes me so embarrassed to be a Buckeye. The contribution from Boehner's Freedom Project to fellow Buckeye Lott was recorded on September 22nd, according to a quarterly report Lott filed with the Federal Election Commission. House Minority Whip Eric Cantor, who is Jewish, has denounced lots participation in reenactments that feature faux Nazis. Don Seymour, a spokesman for the Freedom Project, told Politico Boehner would make no effort to recoup the money. He probably likes the guy. He probably thinks he looks good in a uniform. We don't know what gets Boehner off. <laughs> probably just gives him a big tan when he sees it. Lot spokesman Matt Parker said there would be no reason for Boehner to withdraw his help. Quote, Rich Lot doesn't have an anti Semitic bone in his body, said Parker. Yeah? Well, where does he keep them then? Parker sought to distinguish between a Nazi uniform and an SS uniform, which he said is what Lott is wearing in the now famous image. Oh, well, of course. (laughs) How silly of me to get so upset. It wasn't an SS uniform. It was just a Wehrmacht uniform. Silly, oversensitive me. The Nazis were Adolf Hitler's party and became shorthand for the German military under his rule, while the SS was an elite squadron of soldiers and law enforcers responsible for a variety of war crimes. And the Wehrmacht wasn't? police. Lot's participation in a reenactment group called Viking, W-I-K-I-N-G, stirred up a wave of controversy over the weekend after an account of it was published by The Atlantic. Parker says the whole controversy is a ginned up attempt by Democrats to make a historical reenactment buff into a villain. No, he made himself into a Nazi. The Democrats didn't make him into a villain. If he if dressed up as Genghis Khan, we could have all had a nice laugh and moved on. He's a good and decent man who's being smeared by people who want to use it for political purposes, Parker said. They are worried sick. They are going to lose this seat. So they would stoop to whatever level it takes even to say that Rich Lott is a Nazi. You mean the guy in the Nazi uniform? How could you make an equal sign between a guy dressed up as a Nazi and a Nazi? Yeah, it's too hard for me. Parker acknowledged that the image of Lott in uniform could be offensive if taken by itself. (laughs) Well, I guess if you dropped it down to like three or four pixels in a huge Where's Waldo shot and couldn't find it, it would be less offensive, taken by itself. Quote, when you look at that picture in context of what it was really about and Rich Lott's history of doing military reenactments, when it's taken in context, then it's acting. Then it's really not that offensive, he said. Hoo-wee! Boehner is the only lawmaker to give Lott, uh, any money in the quarter. The Washington-based packs of the National Tank Truck Carriers gave him some bucks. The National Federation of Independent Business, the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list. I know she was one of those people who refused to have an abortion, that Susan B. Anthony. She had kids right and left. And the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers also donated to Lott. Maybe they should give him a call and ask him to take off his Viking uniform. We'll talk later about that. That was a group of Nordics. Under German control, who volunteered to fight for the Nazis on the Eastern Front against the commies, and some of them helped massacre Jewish children in the Ukraine. But of course, that's all out of context. <laughs> Peter Barker's cover story of uh, in Sunday's New York Times magazine, Education of a President, includes some interesting interviews with President Obama and nearly two dozen White House officials talking about lessons of the last two years and what comes next after the midterms. In the interview, the president predicts he'll be able to work with the Republicans after the election. It may be that regardless of what happens after this election, they'll feel more responsible, either because they didn't do as well as they anticipated, and so the strategy of just saying no to everything and sitting on the sidelines and throwing bombs didn't work for them, or they did reasonably well, in which case the American people are going to be looking to them to offer serious proposals and work with me in a serious way. The man is smoking some pretty good stuff if this is what he thinks. Because if the if the GOP doesn't do well, they're going to get even more ornery. And if they take control, they're not going to work with anyone. They're going to do nothing but investigate him and try and defund him and make life hell for him. That's who they are. They don't have a positive healing brain in their entire body. He reflects on what he called the tactical lessons of his first two years. He let himself look too much like the same old, he said, tax-and-spend Democrat, realized too late that there was no such thing as shovel-ready projects, and perhaps should have let the Republicans insist on the tax cuts in the stimulus. He said he and his team took a perverse pride in focusing on policy while ignoring the need to sell it to the country and that he realizes now that you can't be neglecting of marketing and PR and public opinion. He says the next two years will focus less on passing ambitious legislation and more on implementing what he has already passed. Even if I had the exact same Congress, even if we don't lose a seat in the Senate and we don't lose a seat in the House, I think the rhythms of the next two years would inevitably be different from the rhythms of the first two years. There's going to be a lot of work in this administration just doing things right and making sure that new laws are stood up in the ways that they are intended. He rejects the notion that he was better at campaigning than governing. The mythology has emerged somehow that we ran this flawless campaign. I never made a mistake that we were master communicators. Everything worked in lockstep. And somehow now, as president, things are messy and they don't always work as planned and people are mad at us. That's not how I look at stuff because I remember what the campaign was like and it was just as messy and just as difficult. And there were all sorts of moments when our supporters lost hope and it looked like we weren't going to win. And we're going through that same period here. Also, in the piece are frank conclusions of other Obama insiders who, in their dark moments, concede that Obama cannot be another Lincoln and wonder if the best of his presidency is now behind him. I don't think it is. To be a Lincoln? Well, I wonder. If things fall apart more, if there really is a civil war a-brewing, he may end up being the Lincoln, whether he likes it or not. Among the other things the presidential advisor said are, we are a lot more cynical now. Arrogance isn't the right word, but we were overconfident. He's opaque, even to us. It's not what people felt they sent Barack Obama to Washington to do, to be legislator-in-chief. He's a little frustrated with the internal dysfunction. Governor Ed Rendell of Pennsylvania offered this harsh report card of Obama's first two years. B plus, A minus on substantive accomplishments and D plus or C minus on communication. Well, those accomplishments, by the way, Mr. Rendell, are incredible. And he added that Obama needed to stop grousing about what he inherited. Oh, yeah. Eight years of a fascist coup, a broken foreign policy, a crumbling infrastructure, unemployment, a wrecked economy, corruption everywhere. He's got to stop grousing and just take it like a man. Says Rendell, after the election, I say no more pointing back, no more blaming the Bush administration. It's okay to do that during the campaign and then stop, but to do it as much as we do it, it sounds like a broken record. And after two years, you own it. Well, okay, time to own it. Dick Durbin says Obama's post election agenda will have to be limited and focused on the things that are achievable and high priorities for the American people. Tom Daschle says Obama has to reach out more. The key word is inclusion. He's got to find ways to be inclusive. Obama, who is reading the Clinton tapes and comparing his situation to that of Clinton in 1994, has spent what one aide called a lot of time talking about Obama 2.0 with Pete Rouse and Jim Messina as they map out the post-election recalibration. The thing that surprised Obama most after his first 100 days, the number of people who don't pay their taxes, he told aides. Michelle Obama has told guests at the White House that her husband doesn't much care for Camp David because he is more of an urban guy. Really? Really? now he likes them basketball courts in the middle of the inner city rather than all those artificial birds they put in the trees in Camp David. Well, I think in many ways he's done a stunning job. And I think that people expected, indeed, too much of him. I think his campaign was extraordinarily powerful and I think the images that he put forward really gave people to believe that he could turn around the Bush debacle and the Bush poison. And here we are two years later with Karl Rove, Satan's little, you know, helper, uh, running things from above and, and and foreign money buying elections and it's just, it it's, it's god-awful and you can't blame it on Obama. <laughs>
3: science be your god relax your soul and free your mind when you turn a corner take a look you see your life is an open book hold your son with all your love never forget where
0: This is a dandy. It's all about my favorite ayatollahs at the Pray Boy Mansion on uh, C Street. It's from the Washington Post, wouldn't you know? A group of Ohio ministers has asked the Internal Revenue Service to investigate the organization that sponsors the National Prayer Breakfast because it received money six years ago from an alleged Islamic terrorist organization trying to finance illicit lobbying. Clergy Voice, the activist group that that wrote to the IRS commissioner, complained that the Fellowship Foundation violated its obligation as a tax-exempt organization not to deal with such entities. The foundation, an Arlington-based religious enterprise associated with a house at 133 C Street, Southeast, where several members of the House and Senate have rented rooms, acknowledged Wednesday that it had received two $25,000 checks in May and June of 2004 from the Missouri-based Islamic American Relief Agency. Now this, this place on C Street, is the infamous Playboy Mansion where a manly group of Christian congressmen gather to defend the nation against liberals and Satan. And they are so manly that they are found time and time again screwing their secretaries. They're always having interventions where they run into one of these bozos rooms, wake them up and say, you have been screwing your secretary and you've got to stop that right now because it's it's bad as a Christian and it's just bad for the house. And and these guys, I tell you, there's been a lot of stories about them. They've got a lot of youth groups kind of that they play a lot of basketball with young guys. Anyway, the charity was included this charity that they took the $50,000 from was included on a Senate Finance Committee list of terrorist financers in January of that year. The foundation said the agency's money was neither retained nor used to finance foreign trips it had organized for lawmakers such as Senators John Ensign and Tom Coburn. I mean, Tom Coburn, he's the poster boy for the far right. They're the ones that that, that spend taxpayer money to go out and Christianize the world. The group's vetting of donors has been tightened. Glad to hear that. President Richard E. Carver said in an interview Wednesday, hopefully we would not see a repeat of this kind of experience, he added. Hopefully? You mean it might happen again? You might, Osama might walk in wearing like a Zenia suit, hand you $100,000 in bullion and say, just make nice with it, boys. The Islamic American Relief Agency was raided and shuttered by federal agents in October of 2004, but in the months after its inclusion on the Senate committee list, it mounted a quiet lobbying effect to clear its name. Carver initially said the group had checked up on the charity at the time the money came in and found nothing, but then said later in the day that he had received incorrect information and that no such checking had occurred. Oh, really? 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 No checking. Islamic what? Friendship organization? Sounds good to me. Extensive government wiretaps and data collected in the raid led to multiple federal indictments of the relief agency's officers. They culminated in a guilty plea four months ago by Chief Executive Murabak Hamed, in which he acknowledged sending a $25,000 check to the International Foundation in May of 2004. Carver said that was one of the names of his group. One of the names! Hamed, in his plea, said the purpose was to pay for lobbying by former Congressman Mark D. Siljander, a prominent social conservative who promised to help the agency get off the Senate terrorist financing list. Ooh, I love it! Siljander, so in a July courtroom appearance, pleaded guilty to serving as the charity's unregistered agent in meetings with lawmakers on Capitol Hill and admitted lying to federal officers about his role. Guys at the Prayboy Mansion, I mean, there's some scum walking around there. They're taking uh, jihadist money and lying to the government. I wonder what else they're doing behind them closed doors. The Justice Department has said the money involved was stolen from a grant given to the charity by the Agency for International Development in the late 1990s to finance relief work in Mali. Siljander knew at the time that the charity was controlled from Sudan, and he suggested that his payments be rooted through foundations according to his plea. So they money laundered Sudanese jihadist money. These people should be shuttered immediately. Carver said that at the time, Siljander, a fundamentalist, who has attained prominence for advocating closer relations with Muslims, sure, as long as they retain closer relations with his offshore accounts, was an associate of the Fellowship Foundation, and that it has long been the foundation's practice to process donations and payments for all 200 or so associates and its 300 affiliated ministries. Its annual budget is about $16 million, he said. The money... He says, probably came in at a time when nobody thought there was a reason for Mark to do something wrong. I mean, there is a time for Mark to do something wrong. What, what, what Carver said. We uh, never had any reason to expect uh, we would get anything like that. These are just ignoramuses. The Justice Department, in an October 2008 indictment, said the foundation had sent only part of the charity's money to Siljander, but Carver forwarded a statement by the group's accounting saying that 100% of the funds were distributed in Siljander's wages and benefits. They laundered the money! An IRS spokesman said the agency is not permitted to comment on the tax status of nonprofits. Well, When they take away their non-profit status, maybe they can comment on it.
3: It would look as if the future has an influence on what happens today or yesterday. So it would look as if some effect from the future goes back to us today.
0: From uh, Talking Points Memo. Illinois GOP Senate candidate Mark Kirk is taking some heat from his Democratic opponent, Alex Gionulius for bragging on a secret recorded phone call about his voter integrity project, which he said focused on two largely African-American sections of Chicago and two other urban areas in the state. Kirk said on the tape recorded last week that he had arranged for lawyers and other people to be deployed in key vulnerable precincts, for example, south and west sides of Chicago, Rockford, Metro East, where the other side might be tempted to jigger the numbers somewhat. Gio said in a statement on Wednesday that he would have his lawyers look into Kirk's effort. That sort of Florida-style voter intimidation is disgusting, illegal, and smacks of the Karl Rove politics that Illinois voters are sick of, Giannullius said. Michael C. Dorf, a lawyer for the Giannullius campaign, sent a letter to the office of the Cook County State Attorney. Dorf alleged that the tactics used by Republicans and identified by groups like Project Vote are scare tactics, which he said violate both state and federal voter protection laws. This is the This is the GOP right back at it, man. I mean, it goes way, way back. You know, the former Chief Justice of the United States, Mr. Rehnquist, was accused of scaring Hispanic voters when he was a GOP operative down in Texas, scaring people at the polls. You know, they'd rather force people not to vote than to find ways to encourage people to vote for them. These people are dead weight. It does seem to be an institutional strategy to be doing this type of work, and certainly we believe these are code words they have been using, like voter integrity, earmarking minority and low-income sites to do it in. There's no excuse for what they're trying to do, Dorf said. He said the Giannullius campaign asked state officials to provide additional personnel on Election Day to protect voters. We also are writing similar letters to other states' attorneys, to the three U.S. attorneys for the northern, central, and southern districts of Illinois, to Lisa Madigan, the state attorney general, as well as to the Justice Department Civil Rights Division, Dorf said. So we're, we're putting the word out and we're putting everyone on notice that this is going on. Separately, Will Crossley, DNC counsel and director of voter protection, wrote that Kirk has explicitly embraced Karl Rove's brand of dirty politics and his decision to openly endorse and fund the largest voter suppression effort in Illinois in 15 years is shockingly despicable. The simple truth is this. In Illinois' neck-and-neck Senate race, Republicans are trying to pull out a victory not by bringing their supporters to the polls, but by preventing Democratic voters from casting their ballots. The climate may be a little cooler, but this could be Florida 2000 all over again, Crossley wrote. Multiple calls to the Kirk campaign were not returned. They were too busy out there scaring minority voters.
1: Well, you know, I uh, try to bring you the comedy calendar, a few laughs, and not all the, the people on the comedy calendar are necessarily comics, but somehow they trick off something in, in your mind, you know? Well, you
0: know, the French word for comedy is also spirituel. They just have that. It's, it's a good feeling. It's yeah. That, it's the opposite of gravity.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad you're there because this uh, Thursday, the 21st, um, this I've, I've dubbed this myself before the beginning day. Now, there's a reason for this, and that's because on the 22nd, uh, that was when the universe was created at 8 p.m. in 4004 B.C., according to Archbishop James Usher. That's tomorrow, so today must be the day before Creation, which is the day before the beginning. So well, let's party, yeah. Again. Let's, party, let's party,
0: and then it's all going to be begin. And once it begins, then we got problems. Yeah,
1: well, we got comedians to take care of the problems. Curly Howard, one of the great, uh, um, uh, uh, he replaced uh, uh, in the Stooges, he replaced his brother, Shemp. He shaved his head and went out there and got hit over the head many, many times to people's delight. He was born on the 22nd, back in 1903. Johnny Carson was born on the 23rd um of course you know ir- irreplaceable to this day i was i kind of stopped watching that show after he left maybe even before he left but he was the guy and weird al weird al and johnny carson share on the same birthday you got it weird that's the 23rd and um nobody remembers this not even me but the very first comic strip that was published called the yellow kid I remember The Yellow, yellow Kid. The Yellow Kid, it debuted on the 24th of October, 1897. Now, I
0: don't remember it from
1: his debut, but <clears up> from <throat> the fact that i kind of a little bit into comics, I do know what it is. And because the yellow in the title of The Yellow Kid, it was a color a comic insert that gave rise to the expression yellow, yellow journalism. journalism. That's right, Uncle Peter. And finally, on the 24th, which is a, a Sunday, along with The Yellow Kid, Moss Hart. Great playwright, uh, director, uh, um, Broadway director, um, you when, can't take it with you probably when, when he wrote
0: hard. his, he wrote this book, very fine book called act one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he came up to Yale at, to the drama school when I was there and, and spoke to our playwriting class. And he told about the fact he was living in this like little dump in New York writing, trying to write, trying to write. And the day that I don't remember which, which one of the, which his first big success was, but it was one of them plays. He said, I never even went back to the apartment. And I knew the windows were open,
1: and it was raining, <laughs> and I never saw it again. That's a funny story. I visited. His wife was Kitty Carlisle, who was the co-star of a Marx Brothers movie, A Night at the Opera. Yeah. Kitty Carlisle, when she was in her, which 20s. my uncle helped write, and, and a big and a big Broadway star, young you know yeah. young Broadway ingenue star. And uh, she married Moss Hart, and a- after his death, I interviewed her for the Sunday show for NPR in the in his, the apartment he must have moved into after he abandoned that one, which was a very nice establishment. Of course, he was the director of my fair lady, so royalties were just creaming in but she was a wonderful lady she was the head of the she's still around in her 90s and is the head uh, was the head of the new york state arts commission and i remember when i was in her house looking at all of these little baubles and things that had been there since moss Hart's time it was like you could reach out and but you can't take it with you from the guardian in england the
0: whistleblowing group wikileaks claims that it has had its funding blocked and that it is the victim of financial warfare by the U.S. government. Why am I not surprised? Moneybookers, a British-registered internet payment company that collects WikiLeaks donations, emailed the organization to say it had closed down its account because it had been put on an official U.S. watch list and on an Australian government blacklist. You can bet who told the Australians to put that up. The apparent blacklisting came a few days after the Pentagon publicly expressed its anger at WikiLeaks and its founder, Australian citizen Julian Assange, for obtaining thousands of classified military documents about the war in Afghanistan in one of the U.S. Army's biggest leaks of information. The documents caused a sensation when they were made available to The Guardian, The New York Times, and the German magazine Der Spiegel, revealing hitherto unreported civilian casualties. WikiLeaks defied Pentagon calls to return the war logs and destroy all copies. Instead, it has been reported that it intends to release an even larger cache of military documents disclosing other abuses in Iraq. Moneybookers moved against WikiLeaks on the 13th of August, according to the correspondence, less than a week after the Pentagon made public threats of reprisals against the organization. When Assange emailed to ask what the problem was, he says he was told in response by Daniel Stromberg, the Moneybookers e-commerce manager for the Nordic region. When I did my regular overview of my customers, I noticed that something was wrong with your account, and I emailed our risk and legal department to solve this issue. Below, I have the copied answer I received from them. Hi, Daniel. You can inform him that initially his account was suspended due to being accessed from a blacklisted IP address. However, following recent publicity and the subsequent addition to the WikiLeaks entity to blacklists in Australia and watchlists in the U.S., we have terminated the business relationship. So the Pentagon's at war with WikiLeaks, and they won this round. Assange said, this is likely to cause a huge backlash against money bookers. Craven behavior in relation to the U.S. government is unlikely to be seen sympathetically. And he's probably right. Money bookers, which is registered in the U.S. but controlled by the Bahrain-based group InvestCorp, can't trust anybody called InvestCorp, would not make anyone available to explain the decision because nobody works there its public relations firm, 77PR said, we have never had any request, inquiry, or correspondence from any authority regarding this former customer. Asked how this could be reconciled with the references in the correspondence to the blacklist, it said, we stick with our original statement. Oh boy, it's gonna be tough to get through that stone wall.
3: Give me that guitar. All right, everybody. It's a little song. Well,
2: thank you very much. A little song I learned upstream in prison one day. Everybody sing along now. Ready now? This land is made of mountains. This land is made of mountains. This land is made of mud. This land is made of mud.
0: This land has lots of everything. This land has lots of everything. For me and Elmer Fudd, for me and Elmer Fudd. This land has lots of trousers.
3: This land has lots of trousers. Mousers! This land has lots of mousers. And pussy cats to eat them when the sun goes.
1: Well, I do love stories about the South, and uh, I didn't even have to pluck this one out of the sports pages. This was uh, right in the national section of the Times. Ole Miss resolves one mascot controversy and yet creates another drama at Ole Miss, which is, of course, the University of Mississippi. Their mascot was a white-goateed, cane-toting, southern plantation owner and a pretty sassy-looking guy, kind of like, you know— the Kentucky Fried Chicken. What know.
0: was the name of their team, though? If he was the mascot, they weren't called like the plantation owners, the racists. Right? No, they were they called, called that. the
1: masses. <clears throat> was it the Mississippi well, masses? I'll let you know. The new mascot is called the Rebel Black Bear, and it's uh, really a piece of art that you won't want to take home with you. Supporters of the old mascot were quick to fl- find flaws. For one thing, an artist's design shows up brown bear, not a black bear. I don't think this is anatomical either. I think this is r- strictly re- about the color of the drawing. The animal is chosen based on now. Go with me on this. The bear by William Faulkner. No, how, that's uh, impossible. D- but... d- is that a reach or what? Oh my God! Okay, a, a former student of Ole Miss and uh, a former I- resident of Oxford, and in which the bear is killed, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, not exactly inspiring out there on the on the football field. Okay. Of course, there are a million other bears out there. Ole Miss
0: plays like,
1: that team (laughs) plays like 12
0: William Faulkners.
1: (laughs) What? Well, here's a bit of information. And William Faulkner comes down. He's ready to throw that book, and it's in the air. Uh, School administrators say they want to balance tolerance with tradition at Ole Miss. Now, Ole Miss, I'm informed here, is a nickname for a slave owner's wife. Ole Miss. Oh. oh, you're ready to really dig under the scabs here in the in the segregation of the South. Oh my god. Well,
0: remember their governor Haley Barber when they said that McDonnell, the governor of of Haley when they said the McDonald the governor of Virginia had forgotten to mention slavery is one of the problems of uh, Confederate Month, he said oh that don't slavery
1: that don't mean diddly that don't mean diddly well it don't it just don't mean diddly here at Ole Miss the school however has discouraged Confederate battle flags discouraged them at football games, discontinued Dixie as the unofficial fight song, and raised enrollment of black students up to 14%.
0: Wow. Yeah, A state that's go. what. 50% black. I'm not exactly sure. 40%. 40% up, up to
1: 14%. Okay, fans are unhappy about this whole thing, uh, but it did win the um, the the bear won the online poll, support from 62% of students, alumni, staff and faculty members, not to mention the season ticket holders. I think they were given two or and three the votes apiece. Uh the they beat the other uh that bear, beat the other two finalists. Hottie toddy Hottie toddy Hottie toddy a muscular man named after the school cheer hotty toddy one two three old miss will i don't know but die- i like bula
0: boole a lot better than uh, Hottie toddy okay
1: well wait wait for it wait for it and the land shark the land shark is that a developer <laughs> and, <laughs> an, allusion, an allusion to the football team's voracious defense as for Colonel Reb, his fans are not surrendering. The Colonel Reb Foundation's leaders will dress in repl- replicas of his costume and tour the state next week, talking to members of the school news media and trying to reverse the school's decision.
0: Uh, that's a call for me from the Reb. I'll be OK, right back. would you pick that up, please, Pete? All right Dave, we've been sticking with the uh the Tang, it's kind of our thing.
1: It's still, is. There? We're it still is. there. We're still there. Uh this is just the very end this is what time? The very end of the ninth century. Uh this is a poet whose name is Su Kung Tu. Su Kung Tu, which is a nice name. Yeah. And he lived between 837 and 908.
0: You know, when, when, I, when you read these, sometimes like these 8th century poems, I, I try to kind of like cast myself to the little I know about like 8th century Europe. What were the poets writing about then or what was that experience like? This is so much more natural, so much more robust, in a sense, so much deeper.
1: It's really concerned with, um, with the human being in a place. These people, uh, these writers, these men, poets – Are really very happy with where they live and the environment that they live in. They're concerned with human condition, uh, with living and dying, and uh, war, which is constantly going on. Constantly running through
0: their lives, just like ours.
1: And it's uh, and many of them are just very short, occasional poems. Sometimes just a little note written for somebody that has been preserved for how long? Twelve hundred years. Well, what's this one called? Well, this 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 poet Sue. Kung to talk about the little occasional pause. This is one called In the Country. Uh-huh. And you can just see this written out in great black brush strokes on a scroll. From dusk to dawn, I sit under the canopy of a pine, happily facing a calabash of wine. The song of subtle rain fills my mind. For no reason I dream of falling petals. Trifling matters I while away, playing chess, happy with a mirror that bears with my decrepit countenance. The monk next to the brook, immersed in deep thought, has sent a letter inviting me to meet him again.
0: How cool. Well, we're going to send you a little letter, our Oz friends, to meet us again the next time we are on the web wave with you. Radio Free Oz saying goodbye until again.